John chapter 21. No, it's not the one that you are seeing in your bulletin because I listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as best I can and encourage you to always do the same. And this morning, the Spirit prompted me to take the message in a slightly different direction. So make sure you pick up the sermon notes because there's good stuff in there, if I do say so myself. And what's that? Oh, I thought I heard somebody, you know, it's okay. I mean, you know, if you say something, it's family gathering, you know, so. But, but anyway, you, uh, you will get some value, I'm sure, from those notes, and I encourage you to read them. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed some of these new technologies where you can have text read to you by your smart things. And uh, so even when I see a bunch of words on a page and I go, I won't stay awake very long if I start reading. You know what? You can have it read to you. So anyway, you're going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 23. This is probably one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and it's a theme that I have revisited many times over the years of my ministry career and my personal study. It's on page 1078 in your pew Bible, page 1078. And this goes along with the planned topic. We're still talking about the Apostle Peter this time, but I want to take a slightly different approach, and I'd like to invite you to go with me wherever the Spirit leads. Let's read the scripture now. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. So this is after the resurrection to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. You may remember it better as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
And this was now the third time that Jesus was received, uh, revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're talking about Peter today and his style of evangelism, his discipling and his personal discipleship journey. And well, where I got prompted to move the needle a little bit for myself today is that I wrote you something in the newsletter, which by the way, you can pick up outside the lobby, in the lobby, but you'd also expect it in your email tomorrow as long as I've got a working email address for you. And, and it's because I've heard some people say that they're uncomfortable with what I've been proposing lately that you join me on a discipleship pathway. And you know, it wouldn't be the first time and it certainly won't be the last time in my life that I didn't communicate clearly. You know, I don't know about you, but I am often committed to the idea that everything I say makes perfect sense. Until I see people looking at me with curious looks on their face and they scratch their heads and or worse, they just don't respond. Well, when you do what I do for a living and people aren't responding to what you're saying, it, it really hurts. Makes you think, uh-oh, am I losing my touch? Or did I ever have it in the first place, you know? And, and you ask yourself a lot of questions, but, but I, I speak to the discipleship pathway thing in a certain way in the newsletter, and I encourage you to read that. But just talking with some people this morning, I realized something that is so critical and so often overlooked in our journey with Christ, and it's revealed so plainly in the story we just read. So I want you to hear this story retold slightly, the way it was told to me by my, one of my earliest uh, mentors in my ministry life was a professor at my earliest seminary classes back in the 90s. In the late 90s, I was going up to Chicago in the summers, actually Evanston, for four weeks at a time for an intensive class every summer. And I did that for five years and uh, left my wife and 
five small children at home in the parsonage while I was up there for four weeks taking these intensives. And there was a professor up there named Dr. Bill Cooper who really spoke to my soul and really helped me. And he said that if you would take the words of this story in their original language of the original author's intent, you would get a slightly different view of this story. Because in Greek and Hebrew, there are many more words in their vocabulary than we have in English. And so many times the words that we read in the Bible are the correct translations technically, but they don't get there precisely. So if you could hear the story of how Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? In the language of the original author, it might sound something like this. Peter is still looking for Jesus's judgment or redemptions, whatever it is. He, he's looking at Jesus in this moment of this particular occasion. He's looking for forgiveness. He's looking for peace of mind. He's, he's denied Jesus three times within Jesus's hearing. And, and from Peter's point of view, what he did was, was unconscionable. It was so bad. He said, Jesus, I'll stand with you to the end. I'll die beside you. And then in that moment, when Jesus is on trial in front of the, the Jewish leaders and Peter's in the courtyard outside and he's being accused of being a follower of Jesus, he denies him three times. And now later, after the resurrection and after proof that Jesus is more than even the apostles understood him to be, Jesus asks him these strange series of questions and he says the first time, Peter, do you love me? All out, like, like totally sold out to me, committed to me for the rest of your life. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I like you. I'm committed to you as a friend, but I can let you down. That's already been proven. And so after studying on that for a minute, Jesus says to him again, okay, Peter, so you just like me, but do you like me enough to get back in the game with me? And Peter says, you know, Jesus, I, you know, I just have only liked you enough to follow you this far, but I've let you down. I, I don't think I do love you as much as I thought I did. And so finally, Jesus asked him a third time. He says, okay, Peter, so it sounds like you think that you're not good enough. But I got news for you. You're good enough for me, and I need you to get busy. Get in the game. Follow me. See, that's how that story really reads, and at least the way I interpret it. But if you want to study the many words for love that the Hebrew and, well, the Greek language in particular 
for this story. It, it, look it up. Look, look up the word love. You can do this very easily with the Uversion Bible app or, or online or whatever, and you can go into the, my bookstore in there by my office, and, and there's concordance in there. And, and basically what it'll do is it'll show you that there's about five variations on the word love that are in the Hebrew language and the Greek language. And they all get used in this conversation. And it all comes down to the fact that the real good news of the gospel, the real setting free of the believer, it comes down to the fact that nothing about your relationship with God depends on how well you do it. Do you hear me? I've asked you to join me in a discipleship journey where many of you have drawn the conclusion that Pastor Dan is asking me to do more and do it better because I'm not doing it right. And I admit that I caused that feeling in the way that I presented this concept. Now, this isn't about that, but I'm trying to combine the two things together to say to you that what I've discovered about discipleship under Jesus Christ is it only requires that you love him. It only requires that you love him with every fiber of your being. But thanks be to God, it starts with just liking him. It starts with you accepting the fact that, that you need a savior, okay? You need a savior. If you believe there's a God and you believe there's a judgment day, your only salvation is through Jesus Christ. The Bible makes this very clear to us. As you'll remember from a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you that standing before God on judgment day will probably involve asking you to what extent you recognize and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And how that goes down is only left to the imagination of the believer, but the scriptures inform us pretty effectively that we need salvation. Because our holy God wants us in his presence for all time and all eternity and desires that we are in the bond of love with God that is like a marriage. A union between Christ and his church, the body of Christ, so that we are in effect the bride and he's the bridegroom. And the whole story of scripture is about the bridegroom's return. It culminates in his return, and he comes for you. Whether you're here on earth or whether you're already in paradise waiting, either way, it's about this consummation of the union between Christ and the church. And the thing is, is that your holiness, that is your readiness for that union, the purity can we get right down to some of the nitty gritty? The language of scripture is pretty explicit. Now I presided over a lot of weddings as a pastor and I can tell you that every single one of them, the bride shows up in a white dress. 
And the interesting thing is, is that if we take that to mean what it's supposed to mean, it usually doesn't mean that. I'm sorry. Welcome to the world of reality where Satan travels to and fro looking for a soul to devour. Welcome to the world of reality where people fall short of the glory of God all the time. Welcome to the world where no matter how hard you try to be a good Christian, you fail. As if trying to be a good Christian is what gets you there. But the Bible's explicit about this, especially Jesus. And then Paul, in his interpretation to the Gentiles of the Jewish religion and how it's completely undone by Jesus Christ. Because we Christians so often act like righteous Jews in the Bible. We act like the Pharisees. Now, that hurts to hear that, but ask yourself why you are reluctant to evaluate your spiritual journey and why you're reluctant to evaluate your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you already know that it will not come to a level that you think it should. But that's because you're setting the standard. That's because you are deciding whether or not you are living out your faith appropriately. And that means you're missing the point. It's not about you. The spiritual journey of a disciple of Jesus Christ is defined by your devotion to him. It's defined by your love for Christ. Now, I can tell you that I am so far from being a saintly person. You want to hear something funny? Well, I don't know if I should tell this story. <laughs> I can tell you that if you lived next door to me, you would say, hey, y'all don't know him like I know him. And my answer is, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. See, you would like for your pastor and various other spiritual leaders in your community of Christian family to, to appear to be holier than thou and somehow superior in their walk with Christ. And all I can say is, is that's the road that takes you down a slippery slope that's guaranteed to get you into the same kind of trouble the Jews and the Pharisees got into when they were trying to interpret what Christians were all about, starting with Jesus. When we quantify Christianity in a worldly way, we always come up with walls and rules and regulations, and we come up with winners and losers, and we come up with success and failure, and we judge one another. And then we end up with religions that are extremely legalistic, full of rules and regulations and a lot of tradition, by the way, where it seems altogether inappropriate for a Christian to be seen in the company of certain types of people, inappropriate for a Christian to... Uh, to uh, endorse certain things or not punish or re reject 
certain things. It becomes a, a kind of, of Christianity where by tradition, we don't cotton to such behavior. So God forbid that you would smoke, drink, dance, or any of those other sinful things. Based on what? Based on what? Where did you come up with that idea? And then there's the Christians who are libertines or ultra-liberal approaching the scripture as though everything goes. And there are no boundaries and there are no rules. Well, that's not true either. And if you read the New Testament, you read in particular the letters of Paul, and I encourage you to especially dive into his letter to the Ephesians, his letter to the church at Corinth, his letter to the Colossians, especially Colossians is one that you could read two or three words at a time, stop and digest his meaning. The, the point that he's driving at is, is this does not depend on how well you do it. You are not called to follow Jesus as a disciple who has mastered the disciplines that look like certain godly attributes and behaviors. You hear me? When you read, for example, the seven letters that Jesus penned for the seven churches in Revelation, he does not judge them by their behaviors, their habits, their deeds and words, but their attitudes. He condemns them where necessary for the wrong kind of attitude and he commends them for the right kind of attitude. So when it comes right down to it, discipleship is about your frame of mind. To that extent, what I've invited you to do is evaluate your frame of mind and then allow me to walk with you as much as necessary towards improving your attitude towards Christ. If this was about behaviors and it was about habits and hobbies and, and, and tastes and all the things that we do really well in church, right? You know, because we don't do that in this church. That's what those, you know, they do that and so on and so forth. If this was about that, then we would be a club. But as the sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, it has everything to do with our attitude towards our Lord. Now, what I wrote in my sermon notes and what I'll close with is this. I did a little comparing and contrasting in the sermon notes of the Apostle Paul, who we talked about last two weeks, these last two weeks, and the Apostle Peter, and how they were very different personalities, but they both had a couple of things in common at the end. And you know what the number one thing they had in common at the end was? Humility. Both men were young, ambitious, a little cocky, deeply committed to the Lord. Both men were courageous, downright reckless. Both men 
often made stupid statements and then suffered the consequences. But what they had in common at the end of their spiritual journey was that they had been humbled. Because humility is the attitude change that defines you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Humility. Humility says I don't know everything. I don't know mostly everything. I'm not a good Christian. I don't even know how one becomes a good Christian. Humility says I'm not better than you, but I'm not worse than you. Humility grieves sin, grieves chaos, oppression, destruction, because it grieves our Lord, and somehow our Lord's heart and mind is way more important than anything I can do in my heart and mind. Humility invites the Holy Spirit to completely reshape my heart and mind so that it conforms to the heart and mind of our Lord. And this is what Jesus was inviting Peter to when he said, I'll take you as you are. Just get in the game. Join me. Just join me in what I'm doing. And don't worry about how well you do it. Don't ever let yourself get hung up on that. Just be in the game with me. And here's where you can really, really accelerate your progress along the spiritual journey we call a discipleship pathway is join others who are on the same journey in a family like this one where we're all striving for humility. We're all striving to be humble. We're all striving to, as scripture says, let him increase as I decrease. Now, don't you all get legalistic and say, well, I'm not humble enough. I've got to work on being more humble. You blew it. <laughs> if you're rating your humility, you have blown it. <laughs> so join me in not even trying to be more humble today than I was yesterday because then you're kind of keeping score again and that's a real slippery slope. Let us pray. Almighty God, whatever it is that you wanted to say to your people today, let that and that alone reside in their hearts and minds. Wherever you spoke more than what came out of my mouth, let that reside in their minds and hearts. Lord, thank you for using me for a few minutes. All glory and honor are yours, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.